Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez. In this episode, we'll talk about the Minangkabau, a matrilineal society in West Sumatra, Indonesia, which traces descent and inheritance through the female line. In the second part of this episode, we'll be joined by Haldi Patra, a writer, podcaster, and history student who is Oromina. Matrilineality is a societal system in which a person's descent is traced through their mother or maternal ancestors. In a matrilineal society, property such as land is handed down from mother to daughter. These societies typically have customs that are not typical everywhere else. There are many well-known matrilineal societies throughout the world. There's the Garo of northeastern India where a married man stays in his wife's or mother-in-law's house. The Mosuo of southeastern China where marriage doesn't really exist and fathers are not always known to their children. The Hopi of northeastern Arizona where children's names are chosen by the women from the father's clan. The Ovambo of northern Namibia and southern Angola, the Akan of Ghana, and of course, the biggest matrilineal society today, the Minangkabau of West Sumatra, Indonesia. The traditional homeland of the Minangkabau is the highland area of western Sumatra, the second largest of some 3,000 islands which make up the Indonesian archipelago. In the early 21st century, they numbered approximately 8 million. Although the Minangkabau today are citizens of the Republic of Indonesia, they have often been depicted as a unique ethnic group, sharing a language, a subculture, a religion, a homeland, and apparently a rather special position within the Indonesian economy. Because this episode doesn't focus on a particular person, we're going to follow a different structure. In the first part, we'll talk about Adat Minangkabau. Adat is usually translated as customary law, but it can be more general, as in the way the Minangkabau do things. Necessarily, we'll talk about kinship, family structure, clans, the things that make this society matrilineal. In the second part, we'll talk about Paimarantau, a voluntary, mostly temporary, but sometimes permanent migration usually associated with the Minangkabau. We'll touch on Negri Sumbilan, or Nine States, founded by Minangkabau migrants in Malaya, now Malaysia. Finally, we'll talk about heritage and what it means to be Minangkabau. We begin with an important term, adat. The term itself, although in constant use, is highly ambiguous. It's a bit close to culture, but more often, when adat is discussed, the speaker is actually talking about what she takes to be unique about Minangkabau society. This can mean rules of conduct, inheritance and management of property, things like that. So adat could be loosely translated as tradition, like a single portion of modern culture thought to be derived from the past. According to the anthropologist Joel Kahn, referring to adat allows us to set it aside from other aspects of culture. So the word serves two functions. First, to emphasize the importance of matrilineal organization in Minangkabau, both now and in the past, 
and second, to distinguish this body of custom from modern influences and even from Muslim religious law. That's also an important thing to remember. The Minangkabau are Muslim, and the Islam as practiced by the Minangkabau is a pure form known among Indonesianists like Clifford Gertz as Santri. In the traditional sayings of the Minangkabau, Adat is sometimes said to encompass siarat or religious law. So while all societies are thought to have their own Adat, Minangkabau Adat is said to be special because it is based on principles of matrilineal organization. I'm gonna try to keep things as simple as possible, so if there are any anthropologists listening, please don't come for me. Minangkabau was traditionally divided into two main regions known as Darat and Rantau. Darat refers to a geographical area as well as to a cultural phenomenon, the highlands and the culture core respectively. Rantau is taken to mean the outlying districts to the south, east, and west of the Darat. This division of the highlands appears to date from the period of the Minangkabau Kingdom, of which not a great deal is known from the time of its founding in the 14th century. Traditional history maintains that the first king of Minangkabau was a Javanese aristocrat known as Aditya Warman, while Minangkabau myth has it that the kingdom, and indeed Minangkabau itself, was founded by Maharajo Dirajo, one of the three sons of Iskandar Sulkarnain, or Alexander the Great. In the myth, the modern forms of Minangkabau Adat originate from two culture heroes, Datuak Katumangguangan and Datuak Parpatiya Nansabatang, the former a direct patrilineal descendant of the original king, and the latter his half-brother whose father was a commoner or a sage. These two culture heroes are very important in the logic behind social organization. The Minangkabau are organized into clans and lineages known as suku. Suku is a broad term and can be used to refer to any of a number of different levels of kin grouping. Here, the suku are based on four basic descent groups which are said to be founded by the matrilineal descendants of the two culture heroes. This sort of explains why they're matrilineal, right? The founders were matrilineal descendants. So, two culture heroes, four suku. The four suku descent groups are named Koto, Piliang, Bodhi, and Chanyago. However, note that the interaction with kin is not restricted in any way to matrilineal ties. During Hari Raya, the festival at the end of the fasting month, for example, visits are paid to a wide range of kin on both sides of the family, as well as to neighbors and friends. A man is expected to take his children often to his parents and sisters. In fact, a good deal of emphasis is placed on these ties to the father's kin, known as bako. So just because they're matrilineal doesn't mean they disregard their paternal relatives. The importance of bilateral ties as well as ties of common residence is brought out in almost all Adat ceremonies. Weddings, the most important of such ceremonies for the average villager, are the responsibility of the matrilineal kin but they are attended by a wide range of kin from both sides of the family and by friends and neighbors. An important note in marriage here, because they are matrilineal, women are expected to continue the family line. In Minangkabau, a marriage not only unites two individuals, but also two matrilineal family groups. Until quite recently, it was forbidden to marry someone from the same clan. 
influence-based Islamic laws, nowadays it is allowed for marriage within one clan as long as the persons are not closely related by blood. What about inheritance? Do the men get anything? They do. This is where Islam comes in. The Minangkabao make a distinction between high and low inheritance. High inheritance is the property, including the home and the land, which passes among women. Low inheritance is what a father passes to his children out of his professional earnings. This latter inheritance follows Islamic law, a complex system which dictates, in part, that the sons get twice as much as the daughters. One other interesting thing I wanted to talk about is the domestic unit. Traditionally, the rumah gadang, or big house or community house, was under the control of a headwoman, her sisters, their daughters, and their female children. Boys lived in the house until they were circumcised, after which they resided in the local mosque until they were married. The community house was a large rectangular structure raised high above the ground with a saddle-shaped roof. A main room occupied much of the structure. Adjoining it were the living compartments, each occupied by a woman, her children, and her husband. Members of several community houses made up the suku or clan. Several clans made up the negri, the largest unit of government, roughly equivalent in size to a village, which was administered by a council. Since World War II, the traditional kinship structure has declined in importance and many nuclear families have left the village to establish their own households. A quick break for another podcast you should definitely be listening to. Go. Were you traumatized as a child by watching Unsolved Mysteries? Do you like to judge facial hair? (laughs) Guess what? We have a podcast for you. Can you believe it? It's called Perhaps It's You. And it is an unofficial Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Samantha. I'm Liz. We're two cool mystery ants, not really, <laughs> watch an episode of Unsolved Mysteries each week and tell you about it. We update you if any of the mysteries have been solved. We rate the episode on a scale of Robert Stacks. We can give episodes a possible five out of five Robert Stacks, although it rarely happens. Very rarely. We also complain about what everyone is wearing. And it doesn't really matter if you know anything about Unsolved Mysteries or not. You should tune in because it's the number one podcast on iTunes. Yeah, you can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, most podcast platforms. You can also check out our website, perhapsitsyou.com, or find us on the social medias at Perhaps It's You. Banyak malangkah, banyak nandilie, banyak pulau nandidape. If you translate it into English, the more steps to be performed, the more chances to look around, the more benefits that can be gained. It's based from our philosophy of life in Minangkabau. If you ever read something like Alam Takambang Jadi Guru, it's in English, the nature lies become a teacher. So. People in Minangkabau always uh, seek for lesson from the nature. That's Haldi Patra, the one I told you about in the beginning. He's Orang Minang and a master's student at Andalas University in Padang, West Sumatra. He's also a local columnist and podcaster. So, banyak malangka, banyak dandiliek, banyak pulu dandidapek. 
encourages a minangkabaw to palmarantaw, go on migration, to conduct a journey in search of wisdom and prosperity. Rantaw originally referred to the territories outside Luhak Nantigo called Rantaw Nantigo Juray. These are Hulu Batang Hari River, Hulu Batang Kwantan River, Hulu Kamparkiri River. Later, Rantaw came to refer to areas outside Alam Minangkabao that are influenced socioculturally by Minangkabao. Initially, Paimarantaw was conducted by men only, while Minangkabao women stayed in the homeland that they will essentially inherit. Let's listen to Haldi again. Yeah, well, Paimarantaw is like a migration from the Minangkabao war. So, in the past, the young people in Nangkabaw, they had to did uh, merantau culture. It means if you if you already eighteen, you must go to out of Nangkabaw to get uh, your wealthy to get your knowledge. Mm. And in 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 merantau, you will get the. Uh, something new so you can uh, make it as a lesson. Later on, women have also participated in Marantau activity. One of the impacts of going Marantau, especially for those who are doing it permanently, is the possibility of interaction with other ethnic groups through marriages. Some Minangkaba women do buy Marantau through inter-ethnic or interstate marriages. Some Minangkabao migrated to Malaya, now Peninsular Malaysia, in the late 19th century and formed the confederation of small states that came to be known as Negri Sembilan, or Nine States. Minangkabao tribesmen, who closely resembled the Peninsular Malay, left Sumatra to seek greater economic opportunity across the Strait of Malacca. Rapid expansion of Malayan tin mining after 1850 lured increasing numbers of Minangkabao as miners or as petty merchants. The immigrants secured transit to Malaya by selling property or receiving assisted passage in return for contract mine labor. By the beginning of the 20th century, however, capital-intensive mining displaced Minangkabao miners who then shifted to agricultural pursuits in interior river valleys. Land was plentiful and the Minangkabao frequently gained title to land by clearing, planting, and living on it. Malay sultans didn't really raise any objections to these linguistically Malay immigrants because they partially offset the influx of Chinese laborers. Minangkabao immigrants became successful smallholder farmers and they ultimately came to control much of the retail trade in the Malay Peninsula. Orang Minang today are incredibly proud of their heritage. Admira Selim, a professional Minangkaba woman who grew up and continues to live in Jakarta, said that they know they are unique among Indonesia's Muslim communities. She is proud of the difference, especially, she said, that I do have a say in my own community. In daily life, women and men occupy roles that may seem unequal, Women rule domestic life while men hold all positions of political and religious leadership. Yet both genders say that they value those roles and each other equally. Evelyn Blackwood, an anthropology professor at Purdue University, 
published a book about the Minangkabau called Webs of Power, Women, Kin, and Community in a Sumatran Village. According to her, men have public power, but think of them as frontmen, representing the community to the state or to the mosque. Within the clan or extended family, the power that belongs to senior men, especially those with titles like Datu or Chief, is no more significant than that of senior women. Women's ownership of land assures their power and position alongside the men. I think Minangkabau is my first nationality before Indonesia. You know, like Indonesia have has so many culture and as a Minangkabau, I put Minangkabau first and then to mm-hmm. Indonesia. I speak a Minangkabau language in my daily conversation. I only use Bahasa Indonesia in certain circumstances like school, business, and formal formal circumstances. So in daily activity, I speak in Minangkabau. And I live in West Sumatra province where the, the, the majority people here is a Minangkabau ethnicity. So from my childhood until now I grow up, I live in Minangkabau world. So Minangkabau is, is everything for me. The rest of Haldi's interview is available on Patreon. Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do and want to support the next episodes, head on over to our Patreon. Thank you, Laura, Yati, Kara, and Mando for supporting this podcast. It really means so much. If you want to be on the Patreon, you just give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, access to the library, we shout out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. I also post current events in the region and give you some thoughts about them. If you can't get on the Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HerStoryCPod. That's HerStorySEAPod. In the next episode, we'll talk about Haja Fatima, the Sultana of Goa, a tradeswoman and philanthropist from Malacca who built the Haja Fatima Mosque, a rare example of a mosque named after a woman in Singapore. There are so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agas Ramirez. Special thanks to Haldi Patra for the insightful interview, Ehimitsu for the opening and closing theme, and as always, you for listening to this episode. Sampai jumpa lagi!